Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. Well, it's been a pretty demoralizing week. Three major Supreme Court decisions with far-reaching consequences. One effectively scrapping affirmative action programs. One invalidating President Biden's student loan debt relief plan. And one clearing the way for businesses to refuse service to LGBTQ plus Americans. I'll talk about that, how Democrats should be fighting back, and the politics of Pennsylvania with the state's governor, Josh Shapiro, who's coming up first. Plus, law professor and former clerk to Judge Sonia Sotomayor, Melissa Murray, will join me to talk about the impact of these Supreme Court decisions. And when it comes to the uncertainty now facing millions of college students and graduates, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona will talk about the next steps for the Biden administration. Also ahead this hour, she's the first openly transgender person to ever be elected and serve in a state legislature. I sat down with Virginia Delegate Danica Rome for this week's Weekend Routine. If you're watching the events of this week and worry that social progress in this country is backsliding, you're not alone. Of course, it doesn't help when the person responsible for the Supreme Court's conservative supermajority, Donald Trump, is taking a victory lap and the Republican Party seems intent on renominating him, despite the fact that he could soon be a convicted felon. It's important to acknowledge here that it is a very real possibility he could actually win. Everybody needs to be sober about that. The latest national polling from NBC News shows President Biden leads Trump by just four percentage points, which is barely outside of the margin of error. There's also the looming threat of third-party candidates. According to the same poll, 44% of registered voters say they are willing to consider supporting a third-party or independent candidate if Biden and Trump are the nominees in 2024. And that group includes more Democrats than Republicans. Outside of polling, we're seeing additional warning signs for Democrats, including NBC reporting that some Republicans who broke from Trump and endorsed Biden in 2020 are cooling to the prospect. They're sitting on the sidelines about Biden's reelection at this point. If we zero in on Pennsylvania, one of the most closely watched battleground states, there are similar warning signs. A new Quinnipiac poll of Pennsylvania voters showed a virtual dead heat between Trump and Biden. 47% of all registered voters there support Trump and 46% support Biden. It's hard to overstate how important Pennsylvania will be in the 2024 race. It's always an important state. And that was highlighted this week when the conservative activist group Moms for Liberty held their summit in Philadelphia. This group, which touts itself as a protector of parental rights, was founded just two years ago by a pair of former school board members in Florida, and it has rapidly expanded. It's pretty ironic that they call themselves Moms for Liberty, given their focus is on banning books, eliminating lessons on racial discrimination, and in one district in Pennsylvania, even banning pride symbols. That doesn't sound like liberty to me or to my next guest, who made a powerful ode to what he calls real freedom in his inauguration speech. Only by setting the table of opportunity and inviting all to come and sit and partake can we advance the cause of 
real freedom, where political differences cause debate, but do not give rise to demagogues. The real freedom that leaves its citizens with the confidence of knowing that the doors of opportunity will swing open if they simply push them through. Where everyone gets a shot and no one is left behind, that is real freedom. And that is our challenge. That is our calling. Maybe that's a message more Democrats should embrace as we head into 2024. Joining me now is Pennsylvania's governor and former attorney general, Josh Shapiro. Uh, governor, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me this afternoon. And before we jump into politics, and there's a lot of that to discuss, as a former attorney general of Pennsylvania, I want to get your take on the Supreme Court rulings this week. And after the ruling on LGBTQ plus rights came down, you tweeted this, and I'm just going to read the direct quote. Real freedom means that no matter who you are, who you love, what you look like, or who you do or do not pray to, you belong in Pennsylvania. LGBTQ plus rights are human rights. If SCOTUS won't defend them in D.C., we'll do it in the states. And I have no doubt that gives a lot of people in Pennsylvania some hope. But what can you realistically do as governor? You know, Jen, this was um, a bad week for freedom in this nation, and it's a direct effect um, of our elections back in 2016. Elections have consequences, and we all have a responsibility in this country to defend our freedoms, to defend our democracy, and the best way to do that is to show up and vote. Sadly, this Supreme Court, I fear, over the, you know, the decades to come will continue to try and restrict our freedoms. And it's why the states are so critically important right now. Here in Pennsylvania, we value real freedom. We protect our LGBTQ citizens here in this Commonwealth. We stand up for our children. We stand up for real freedom and we protect democracy. We're going to do everything in our power to make sure we have a non-discrimination law on the books that is constitutional and fair and lets every LGBTQ plus individual know that they are valued and welcome here in this Commonwealth. This is a moment where folks across this nation need to focus on their state lawmakers, their governors, and work to create real freedoms in their respective states and commonwealths. As you just said, Governor, elections have consequences. We do have the Supreme Court. We have. And as you look at the rollback of rights over the last year, from overturning Roe v. Wade to, of course, the decisions this week, and given the trajectory, are there other rights you think are at risk? They've clearly gone after precedent. Do you think gay marriage is at risk? Is interracial marriage at risk? What should we be preparing for? I mean, look, I hate to sound like a like a doomsdayer here, Jen, but but I think they're they're all at risk. I mean, for so many, they couldn't have imagined that, um, you know, the, the the sort of reliance doctrine that existed, uh, along with what I thought was sound legal precedent around the right to make decisions over your own body, around the right to have an abortion in this country. No one imagined that that could actually be overturned by a Supreme Court who was willing to look the other way on the law. And again, on on the, the stare decisis that that existed, the, mm. the reality here is that um, the states are going to have to fill that void here in Pennsylvania. Uh, 
we will protect a woman's right to choose so long as I'm governor. We'll protect the LGBTQ community. We'll protect your right to read the books you want and marry who you love. Um, those rights are very much in the crosshairs of this Supreme Court, and we have to do our best in the states to guard against those rollbacks. Turning to politics now, Governor, you're going to be at the center of that, as you're used to being. Uh, and the GOP is cozying up to groups like Moms for Liberty uh, and claiming to be the party of freedom. But you've spoken about what freedom, real freedom is. You talked about that in your inaugural address. You talk about it frequently. How do you think Democrats should go on offense and counter some of this rhetoric of the other side trying to own freedom and rights and, and parental choice? You know, Jen, I, I think this is a stark contrast, and this should not be an issue that Democrats are afraid to lean in on, from the White House to governors to members of Congress, everybody in between. Look, there's a reason why the leading Republican candidates for president are going to visit with that group in Philadelphia this weekend, because they're anti-freedom. I mean, th think about this, Jen. They are showing up to brag about how they want to restrict a woman's right to make decisions over her own body. They are yeah. showing up to brag about how they want to take books out of the classrooms of our children. They are showing up to talk about how they want to attack children for simply being who they are or adults for wanting to marry who they love. That is not real freedom. Our party, the Democratic Party, is the party of real freedom. This is a clear contrast. And we need to stand up, step up, and speak out on these issues. And I think it says a lot about these Republican candidates that they believe that the path to the nomination of the Republican Party today is bigger government that limits your freedoms. The exact opposite of where the Republican Party was a few decades ago. I think it is a clear contrast. I think it is one of the reasons why we won this race in Pennsylvania. And I think it's a formula for our party's success in the future. We are the party of real freedom. And this weekend in Philadelphia, as these candidates courted that group, I think proves that they are not for real freedom. There's a recent Quinnipiac poll I'm sure you've seen that shows how tight the race between uh, President Biden and former President Trump currently is in Pennsylvania, as it often is. But the poll shows 47 percent for Trump, 46 percent for Biden. Also in that same poll, you have a much higher approval rating by multiples of double digits than President Biden. Now, I know you've been working very closely with the Biden administration implementing economic policy and a lot of these mm -hmm. bills that have passed, but that doesn't appear to be resonating with voters as it as it relates to his approval rating. Why do you think that is? You know, look, Jen, there will be a binary choice at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. It will be President Biden running for reelection against one of these anti-freedom Republican candidates. And when you have that clear binary choice, um, I think it's safe to probably assume it'll be close in Pennsylvania. I mean, 2016 was settled by 40 some thousand votes, 2020 by about 80,000 votes. So I don't think that's any sort of breaking news. But I do think at the end of the day, President Biden is in a strong position to win in Pennsylvania again. And it's because not only is he standing up for real freedom, but because he's delivered for the good people of Pennsylvania. He was my partner in reopening 95 mm. in record time. The federal government was right there with us. He's delivered billions of dollars for our infrastructure. He's been there uh, to make sure that we have the resources we need here in this commonwealth. And I think as that story uh, is shared throughout um, a campaign where there's a clear choice, uh, I think the voters will, will appreciate 
appreciate that and, and I feel confident in his position. When it comes to that binary choice, uh, there is this possibility of a third party candidate or there's rumblings of that. I think it's safe to say. And back in 2016, the margin between Trump and Hillary Clinton was a lot smaller than the share of the third party vote in Pennsylvania. How concerned are you that a third party candidate could play spoiler in the state in 2024? Yeah, look, I, I don't honestly know if that's um, going to be a real possibility or if it's just something folks are talking about right now. Um, I think there will be a, a clear choice at the end of the day between whoever the Republican nominee is and President Biden. And I think he has a lot to make the case here from the infrastructure resources he's delivered to the other support that he's shown Pennsylvania. He's got a really strong story to tell here in the Commonwealth, and uh, I'll be telling that story alongside him. You spearheaded the successful reopening of the I-95 bridge just 12 days after it collapsed. Pretty impressive. As somebody who grew up on the East Coast, it's a pivotal, pivotal uh, road. We know that uh, not just Republicans are skeptical of government and spending, but there is kind of a skepticism in the country of institutions and the effectiveness of government. This is an example of it working. How can you use that as an example to counter that argument out there and kind of rebuild some trust in institutions? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Look, I mean, as you know, from growing up on the East Coast, I mean, this is a major thoroughfare, 160,000 cars and trucks every day from folks trying to get to work, families going on vacation, trucks trying to get their product to the marketplace. And so when that road quite literally, Jen, just collapsed, the experts said it would take months to reopen. Um, We took an all hands on deck approach. We brought everyone together, federal, state, local uh, folks, engineers and lawyers and others who were needed to get this done. And I said, we're going to work together literally 24-7 and get it done. And we reopened that road in 12 days. They said it couldn't happen, but it did. And as we were going through this process to really get at the heart of your question, I thought it was critically important to show not only the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, but the nation, um, you know, the what we talk about every day in the governor's office, the GSD attitude, the, the get, you know, get stuff done attitude here <laughs> and to show it's that government show. can be a <laughs> I don't want to get bleeped. I don't want to get bleeped. Um, you know, to show that government can be a force for good, Mm -hmm. that when government comes together, we can solve big problems again. And I think it is a great example um, of the power and the reach of government when we work together, when we do things, Jen, that are common sense, when we don't run to extremes, but we actually run together and work together to focus on results. And um, I was pleased not only that we could get that road reopened uh, in really record time, but I was pleased when I visited the bars and the restaurants in that affected area that had really lost all their customers for those 12 days. I was pleased when I went in there and was just chatting folks up, you know, to try and encourage people to come back to the bars and restaurants. I was encouraged when they said to me, hey, man, look, you know, I didn't think government could do it, but y'all proved me wrong. Uh, You showed what government can do. And that makes me feel good as someone who believes in the power of government, as someone who believes that we can be a force for good and positive change. The fact that this road reopening helped people see that, I think it's an important message for our Commonwealth and for our country. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro, thank you for your time this afternoon. Next, Melissa Murray will join me to talk through the impact of the Supreme Court unraveling decades of progress with the decisions they handed down this week. 
Plus, I'll ask Education Secretary Miguel Cardona about the next steps for the Biden administration after the court scrapped one of the president's key initiatives. And later, Virginia delegate Danica Rome, who made history as one of the first trans public officials, brings me to her favorite local diner in our latest weekend routine. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. This week, decades of progress on civil rights and gay rights unraveled at the hands of six right-wing, unelected Supreme Court justices, serving lifetime terms, by the way. And it's not just social progress. Your financial future may take a hit as well because of their decisions. If you're one of the 43 million Americans eligible to have your student loans forgiven, you could now be on the hook for as much as $20,000 you weren't planning on for. That could mean putting off purchasing a home, creating a business, or maybe even starting a family. And when it comes to your personal lives, these conservative justices clearly will not restrain themselves from ruling on matters that really should be a matter of public policy. So what about legal precedent? Well, the Supreme Court just struck down affirmative action in colleges, casting aside decades of its own opinions that upheld a key civil rights era policy. Is a person's race a legitimate factor in determining chances for a place in a school? The court said yes. The federal leaders are interpreting the court decision as a general approval of such programs. Tonight, the Supreme Court has spoken. They have ruled affirmative action is here to stay, at least for now, and at least in some form. The court has ruled by a 5-4 to four vote that achieving student body diversity justifies the use of race in admissions. Today, the court said colleges and universities may continue to use it in their admissions. The court also today gave a big boost to affirmative action in college admissions. It upheld the program at the University of Texas at Austin and said affirmative action makes classes more diverse and educational plus. So I guess precedent doesn't matter anymore. What about the actual facts? Shouldn't they matter to the Supreme Court when it weighs a case with the potential to change how businesses treat LGBTQ plus Americans? Well, the website designer who just won her case to deny business services to gay couples provided a letter as evidence claiming that a gay man had contacted her to make a wedding website. But, and this is a big but, it turns out that letter could be fake. In an interview with The Guardian, the man in question said he never contacted the designer, never sent her an email or a message. In fact, according to The Washington Post, he's been married to a woman for 15 years and also happens to be a web designer himself. 
As he told the New Republic, quote, I'm married. I have a child. I'm not really sure where that came from. But somebody's using false information in a Supreme Court filing document. So if facts and decades of legal precedent can so easily be ignored, what other hard-fought rights can this conservative majority on the Supreme Court take away from all of us? Joining me now is Melissa Murray. She's a professor at NYU Law School and was a law clerk to then-judge, now-justice, Sonia Sotomayor during her time on the U.S. Court of Appeals. So, one, thank you for joining me, Melissa. I've never wanted a law degree more, so I'm grateful you're with me uh, today. And I want to start with something Justice Clarence Thomas said to then-Senator Joe Biden about affirmative action during his confirmation hearing in 1991. So let's watch that video and we'll talk about it on the other side. Did you say, Judge, that affirmative action preference programs are all right as long as they're not based on race? Uh, I said that we, from a policy standpoint, I agreed with affirmative action policies that focused on disadvantaged minorities and disadvantaged individuals in our society. Well, for example, I'm my- not, I'm, I'm not com- commenting on the legality or the constitutionality. I- So there are hours of videos, of course, of confirmation hearings from all of these justices. But reflecting on what's happened now with affirmative action and also abortion a year ago, do you think he and other conservative justices were a little disingenuous during their hearings? Whether they're disingenuous or not, they're permitted to say whatever they like at their confirmation hearings, and it's up to the Senate to decide whether they're being genuine or not and to vote in a way that does provide the president with true advice and consent when he's nominating a justice. But the real point of the question and the underlying issue, I think, is the idea that this court in the absence of any check from Congress, has arrogated so much power to itself that it no longer follows the precedents of earlier courts and essentially is legislating in the way that it likes. The affirmative action decision is a key aspect of this. The court Mm -hmm. doesn't like affirmative action, even though earlier courts blessed it and confirmed that it was constitutional. But this court has decided that it doesn't believe it's constitutional. It disagrees. And so when you have six, they let you do what you want. And this court is definitely doing what it wants. Now, as I don't want to be alarmist here, but people should know what to expect. I mean, as we're looking at other precedents that they could overturn, are you concerned that gay marriage might be next? What else could be on the chopping block? Well, again, every precedent is on the chopping block because this court has made it clear that they're not bound by stare decisis, especially in circumstances when it comes to interpreting the Constitution. They've said repeatedly, both last year in Dobbs and this year, that they are free to look at these precedents anew to correct what they believe are egregious errors. So, yes, everything is on the table. Justice Thomas told us this last term in his concurrence in the Dobbs case. There's Griswold versus Connecticut, which legalized contraception. There's Loving versus Virginia. He's let that one pass for, but again, it's raised Mm -hmm. here in this new case, 303 Creative. And of course, Obergefell raises bigger questions. And it's not clear that there's going to be an immediate frontal assault on gay marriage, but the court's decision this week in 303 Creative, that was the case about the website designer who refuses to provide services for same-sex weddings, that's a beginning opening salvo, initially chipping away at the kinds of services and expectations that same-sex couples might have in the public sphere. And once you normalize the idea that you can treat same-sex couples differently, you're well on your way to rolling back recognized rights. 
It was a right-wing advocacy group, as you know, that brought this affirmative action case to the Supreme Court. And after Thursday's decision, Stephen Miller, who we all remember was an advisor to uh, former President Trump, sent a threatening letter to 200 schools saying that his legal group is prepared to sue if they don't abide by the court's ruling. How does this, in your view, embolden right-wing groups to go after universities? And how do you anticipate these schools will respond to these legal challenges? So I think this is the point. The court made clear in the opinion that it wasn't taking all questions of race off the table. At the end of the opinion, the chief justice says that an individual can discuss his or her racial background in their admissions essay so long as they connect it to individual characteristics like leadership or courage, he says. And again, I think that was because of the intervention that Justice Jackson made at oral argument asking whether it was okay for legacy applicants to talk about their family histories, but if it was whether it was still okay for black applicants to talk about their family histories as well. And so this seems to be a compromise that the chief justice has brokered. But Stephen Miller and others like him want to chill all questions of race and college admissions processes Mm. going forward. And so in this space where there's confusion, perhaps, or uncertainty about what the court means and what this decision requires, he stepped into the breach to basically threaten these colleges and universities in the hopes that these threats will chill what is actually still lawful conduct right now. And I would urge universities and colleges who are thinking about their admissions protocols right now to read this decision, to look at the end of this decision, and to be very clear about it. The court says very, very plainly that you can in invite applicants to talk about their family backgrounds, not just their racial backgrounds, but their backgrounds more generally, and connect it to the way in which it has shaped their identity and the cultivation of personal characteristics. Melissa Murray, thank you for providing a lot of clarity for us today. And stick with us, because after the break, I'll ask Education Secretary Miguel Cardona about the path forward for millions of people affected by the Supreme Court's decisions on student loans and affirmative action. And later, the latest group of Americans now being singled out by the GOP. Among the decisions from the Supreme Court's conservative supermajority this week were two that radically shifted the landscape of higher education virtually overnight. In two separate 6-3 opinions, conservatives on the court struck down both affirmative action and the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness program. These decisions are going to have a very real impact. It's going to be harder to ensure that institutions of higher learning remain accessible and reflect the diversity of backgrounds in our country. So where do we go from here? Well, I'm grateful to have joining me right now uh, someone who can really help answer these questions, and he is the Education Secretary, Miguel Cardona. So I just want to start here. So many people across the country, students, people who are paying loans, have lots of questions. So on Friday, President Biden announced a new plan to work around the court's ruling on the administration's student debt program by using the 1965 Higher Education Act. What are the next steps in that? Because a lot of that's on you. And how long do you anticipate it will take or people should expect it to take? Sure. Thank you for having me, uh, Jen. You know, it's really important, first of all, that uh, borrowers hear loud and clearly that we're not stopping the fight, that we recognize how important this is. So as as you mentioned, uh, within hours of the Supreme Court decision, which we totally disagree with, I think is wrong, um, we announced that we are moving forward with another pathway 
to debt relief. Um, there's going to be a public hearing. It's a negotiated rulemaking process, which, as the president said Friday, takes a little bit longer. But it is uh, a pathway that I have available to provide debt relief. Uh, and we're going to be using that. And we're, we're starting the process. We started it Friday. And uh, the first step is uh, an open hearing that will be uh, taking information and taking public comment. And that's happening in July. So as a part of this announcement, there is going to be a 12-month period for borrowers reentering payments beginning in October. For young people out there who are kind of freaking yep. out yep. right now because they're not sure if they can make their payments, they don't know if their current salary will allow them to make their payments, what do you right. tell them? How will that work? Yeah, sure. You know, 43 million people were waiting for a positive decision on Friday, and um, we're going to keep fighting. So in addition to the rulemaking process that's going to um, move us forward with another plan for debt relief, we're providing two other things. Uh, an on-ramp, what we're calling an on-ramp, while interest will accrue and payments are due, we are not going to be uh, harming those who are struggling to make payments for the first 12 months. We're calling it an on-ramp. We're not going to be giving information to credit report uh, reporting agencies. We want to make sure we're preventing people from falling into default and delinquencies, and um, we're creating that on-ramp again. We're also uh, rolling out our SAVE income-driven repayment program. So basically, and I'm really excited about this, Jen, this is, this is a big deal. For undergraduate students, their loan payments will be cut in half. If your salary is less than $33,000 a year, your salary will go down, uh, excuse me, your loan payment will go down to $0. We're making sure that we're rolling out a plan that's responsible, where people are not going to be asked to pay more than they can afford. So we have three things. We have the uh, debt relief plan that we're rolling out. We have the income-driven repayment plan, uh, which is new, and it's the best one ever. Uh, and we have the on-ramp to make sure that we're supporting our borrowers as they return to repayment. Is there any reconsideration, because this is a big question out there, of extending the pause on payments, mm -hmm. which will resume in October? You know, uh, initially we uh, communicated that 60 days after the uh, loan, uh, the decision is made by the Supreme Court, payments will resume. And then with the debt negotiation uh, conversations, that was really put to rest. Congress said there's no way that we can do that. So either way, they're going to start. Uh, but we want to make sure we're doing it in a way that's supportive of our borrowers and recognizing the fact that for many of them, they're going to be struggling to make payments and that they've been paused for three years and we need to support them in this process. And that's what we're doing. Before I let you go, I just want to ask you about something former President Trump keeps saying, which is that high school pr or principals, I should say, should be elected and also fired by votes from parents. <laughs> You are a lifelong educator. Uh, why would that be damaging? What about that concerns you? You know, I was a high, I was an elementary school principal for ten years. Uh, I'm, a, I'm an educator, and I think you know the absurdity that comes out of uh, his mouth is just it baffles me. You know, the last two days, we've dealt with decisions that bring back education decades. Um, this is the same president that's talking about smaller government now wanting to have his hand in the classroom um, overreaching. Please, look, we have trained professionals out there that are working closely with parents. We're supporting making sure that our parents and educators work together to have decisions being made at the ground level. The last thing we need is someone trying to get political points by creating culture wars and division in our country. Our kids need us to work together and to be student-centered. Um, right now, the, the division that they're uh, promoting in education, is, is it's harming kids, and we're not going to stand for it. We're going to keep fighting for our borrowers. We're going to keep fighting for access to higher education, and in our K-12 
space, we're going to raise the bar to make sure those kids have opportunities uh, that they deserve. So many questions around education, the cost of college, how people are going to pay for it. We hope we can have you back to talk more about this. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Coming up next, my thoughts on how the GOP is pitting one group against another for political gain and why it reminds me of a very old playbook. Plus, Virginia Delegate Danica Rome takes me to her favorite diner in her district. That's coming up right ahead. So lately, I've been noticing the reemergence of a very old GOP playbook that harkens back to President Richard Nixon's infamous Southern strategy. During his campaign for president in 1968, the Republican Party made a concerted effort to reach white Southerners who used to vote for Democrats by playing to their fears of African-Americans and the civil rights movement. And it worked. By pitting one group of Americans against another, the GOP successfully managed to split off Southern whites from the Democratic Party. Now, decades later, the right wing is reviving that same playbook, this time with Muslim Americans and trans people. Hear me out here. The GOP is trying to recruit Muslim Americans, a community that makes up less than 2% of the U.S. population, against another tiny marginalized group of Americans— transgender people. It's important to remember that back in 2011, during the Republican primary, the right wing had designated Muslim Americans as public enemy number one. No surprise, given that conspiracy theorists—remember the birthers? I do—had been trying for years to portray President Obama as a Trojan horse for Sharia law. Republican after Republican candidate ginned up fear about the fabricated threat posed by an Islamic legal doctrine debated by scholars for centuries. To them, the imaginary prospect of Sharia law in this country was scarier than gun violence, climate change, and more important to discuss than, say, millions of people who didn't have health care. I do not believe in Sharia law in American courts. I believe in American laws in American courts. If we think that there is an undermining now, just wait if Sharia is adopted or utilized by justices in the United States. Accepting Sharia in the United States would be the end of our civilization as we know it. No jurisdiction will tolerate having Sharia imposed in the United States of America. The end of our civilization as we know it, he says. Of course, there was no chance Sharia law was going to be implemented in the United States. Now, Trump's origin story is the birther movement is a part of that. But all of this also set the stage for him to make this declaration as a candidate in 2015. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Now, fast forward eight years, and the right wing has focused their fear-mongering on trans people. And who better to go after the new enemy than the old enemy? Consider this from 2015. We cannot be the warehouse of all these, you know, Muslim people coming from these far-flung lands where, you know, we're just not going to be able to uh, control who becomes radicalized, who doesn't, because of technology. It's impossible. Now, if you can believe it, Laura Ingram is rallying Muslims against books in schools with LGBTQ plus themes. Us Catholics and uh, uh, other Christians, other people of faith have been waiting for the Muslims to step up on this issue. In 2015, 
In an interview later with Semaphore, Laura Ingram's guest, who you just saw on the screen, couldn't believe how ironic this all is. He said, quote, five years ago, Laura was saying we shouldn't have Muslims in this country. Now she's saying, thank God the Muslims are here. Just to summarize, the right-wingers, the conspiracy theorists, the birthers, they now want us to forget the years they spent fear-mongering about Muslims and Islam. Ten years ago, standing against Sharia law was the key GOP litmus test. Now that litmus test seems to be how fervently you oppose transgender people. Just listen to what Trump himself had to say about that. Even he doesn't exactly know why he's attacking them. It's amazing how strongly people feel about that. You see, I'm talking about cutting taxes. People go like that. Talking about talk about transgender. Everyone goes crazy. Who would have thought five years ago you didn't know what the hell it was? So what you just heard in that video, that sounds an awful lot like and reminiscent of what George Wallace, a staunch segregationist, once told a newspaper editor. Quote, you know, I tried to talk about good roads and good schools and all of these things that have been part of my career and nobody listened. And then I began talking about black people and they stomped the floor. So let's be clear. This is the same old GOP playbook, another cynical ploy to tear at the fabric of our society and damage the idea that out of many, we are one, all because they want so desperately to regain the White House. Coming up, Delegate Danica Rome, the first trans person elected to statewide office in Virginia, shares her personal story and our latest weekend routine. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Virginia delegate Danica Rome made history in 2017 when she became Virginia's first openly transgender elected official. Now, six years later, she's running for state Senate. I sat down with Delegate Rome at one of her favorite local restaurants to learn more about her journey. Is this a place you typically would come on a weekend when you have some time? I just come here during the day, you know, for breakfast, like once every two or three or four weeks, and, you know, just catch up. And, you know, one of the best ways to interact with your constituents is to go where they are and just say, hey, how y'all doing? You know, and just tell me what's on your mind. And you're sure there's always someone to reply. I mean, I love yeah. that. Now, you were the first trans person to be elected in Virginia, and you were known by a lot of people for that. But a lot of people don't know about how you grew up. You grew up around here. What was your childhood like? I went to public school from, you know, kindergarten through third grade over at Lock Woman Elementary. And then um, I spent the next 13 years in Catholic school from fourth grade all the way until I graduated uh, college at St. Bonaventure. How did you feel in that Catholic school? I hated the uniform, that's for sure. You know, just uh, it's, especially when you're a closet case trans kid um, mm. in the Catholic school uniform. Not a good fit. Didn't feel like you. Did not feel like me ever. Was there a person in your life who helped you become the person you were meant to be? 
in terms of like being trans, like I just I didn't talk to anyone about it. Yeah. I was not at all in high school. No, I was scared to death to tell anyone. Absolutely. What were you scared they were going to say or do? No, there have been complete ostracization. Mm -hmm. I mean, just I mean, just to be singled out that regard. I knew one out gay person in all yeah. of high school, and you know, and I saw him get made fun of. You know, and so it's just. I didn't have outlets for expression for it. I heard that your name, Danica, might have a bit of a connection to your love of heavy metal. Yeah, so, you know, just, you know, just as I was choosing my own name, I'm just trying to, it's kind of like you're putting on a jacket and you're trying to figure out something that fits. But I love Metallica, Apocalyptica, just mentioned, yes. uh, Epica is a female-fronted uh, European band who's amazing. And yeah, just slid in, I was like, yep, that's the one. And it just, it just clicked and it felt right. And um, one of the things about when you come out as trans is when things start going right for you in terms of how people just talk to you and you know the first time they get your pronoun correct not because they were being kind to you because it's how they saw you in the world it just you feel elated in that moment and how old were you when you felt that euphoria do you remember a particular moment or day yeah, so or interaction i worked for my local newspaper here at gainesville times prince william times for more than nine years mm -hmm. and there was a day where, you know, I was well into transitioning, you know. I was just at a, a high school lacrosse uh, game once, and I was just interviewing uh, one of the, you know, the team afterward. And the coach brought a player aside, you know, just typical thing done hundreds of times, you know, just conduct an interview. And you know, he was really polite, you know, super polite. And he's just, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And I was just like, I'm not going to correct because there's nothing to correct. Mm -hmm. This is like the first time anyone's actually gotten it right. What advice would you give to the young Danica Romes out there who may see you talking publicly about your own experience, who see hundreds of bills being pushed forward? What advice would you give to them? Be who you are and be that well because of who you are, not despite it, and not for what other people tell you you're supposed to be. I know that you're a fellow library lover. I am as well. And you just wrote a book and you love books. So I yeah. think we're going to go check out the local library. Sounds good. What do you love the most about libraries? The entire part of my community here, if they want knowledge on something, if they want entertainment on something, if they want to learn about stuff, they have a place where they're welcomed regardless of identifiers. Everyone is welcome at the library and that this is one of the ultimate equalizers in the world. As a big reader, yeah. does it feel just wild that your book here <laughs> is in this library? Yeah, so I love the fact that um, my local libraries you know, are carrying uh, my book, Burn the Page. It's really cool to you know, have gone from this closet case here too afraid to tell anyone who I truly was and being able to express myself right here in the Manassas area and now putting it all on display. Thank you for spending some time with me today, taking me to the library and an amazing diner down the street. Thank you so much for coming to Prince William Manassas Park. I'm so grateful you're here. My thanks to Delegate Danica Rome for taking me to one of her favorite places to eat and, of course, to the local library. We're back with more after a quick break. That does it for me today. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And you can now listen to every episode of the show as a podcast for free. What's better than that? Search for Inside with Jen Psaki wherever you get your podcast to follow the show and listen anytime on the go. We'll be back here next Sunday at noon Eastern. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. 
No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.